you can turn with me uh, to the book of Leviticus. Uh, Let me pray one more time uh, before uh, we begin our study here together. Let's pray again. Father God, that really is our prayer. Not I, but Christ. And so we pray now as we consider the sacrificial system, something that seems so far from us, I pray that it would draw us near to Jesus, that we would see our Savior more clearly and worship him more passionately because our study of this book, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you have traveled Interstate 80 uh, west out of Chicago. <laughs> you, you know what's coming, right? Uh, first is Iowa which has corn, and then Nebraska, less people, more corn, and then Nebraska, which is the same as Iowa, or sorry, then comes Wyoming, which is the same as Nebraska, but, but no corn, right? Just nothing, right? It's like the moon. It has its own kind of beauty, but if you're from the Midwest or if you're from New England, from out east, you're like, where am I, right? This is different. This is not Michigan. Where's a lake? You know, it's, it's very different. I think if you've tried to read through your Bible, maybe in a year, you've gotten to Leviticus and you've thought, where am I? This is different. This feels a little strange, right? This is not what I'm used to. It's maybe the kind of place you're like, okay, I'm going to speed through here so I can get to wherever is on the other side of it. So I can get where I'm going. But I want to I wanna encourage you uh, that I really am excited to study Leviticus with you. And there is, kind of like Wyoming, there is a beauty to it. Uh, it'll surprise us. And it is, it is glorious and it is worth our attention. We, we will find Jesus' favorite verse to quote is from Leviticus chapter 19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We'll find... Uh, the history behind the word that we still use to scapegoat, right? A scapegoat, someone's scapegoating, this kind of idea. We'll find themes, rich themes, themes that as Christians, believers in the gospel, we love themes of substitution and sacrifice and representation and atonement and holiness, all intricate to our understanding of, of Jesus, so I hope that we won't just see, okay, there's some obscure laws and purity and some sacrifices, these offerings, this is so strange, but that we'll see that these things help us understand. They set the stage for our understanding of the gospel itself. One preacher put it this way, it's almost as if Leviticus and the rest of the Old Testament build a mighty organ for us, like this one, an organ, not like this one, right? An organ, an organ upon which the New Testament authors come and play the tune of the gospel. Do you see? These, this is the building blocks for our understanding, not just of Christ, but of his work and what it accomplished. So we're going to consider, Lord willing, this week and then four more weeks after next week. Next week we have a guest speaker. Five themes from the book of Leviticus. This isn't all we'll talk about, but we're going to move through the book section by section around some themes. So this week we're going to kind of survey chapters 1 through 7 around the theme of substitution. 
We're going to consider the theme of representation, of separation, of atonement, and of holiness. Usually, when I'm preaching through a book of the Bible or a section of Scripture, we go pretty much verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we are going to progress kind of from beginning to end, but we're not going to comment on every verse. My goal is so that you would be able to go to Leviticus and see its beauty, understand its parts. So we're going to talk about some trees, and we're going to talk a lot about the beauty of the forest. So that when you journey through there next time, you notice things that you didn't notice before. You understand things. But more than that, the goal isn't just to help you in your annual Bible reading. The goal is to help us respond in worship. That our hearts might be moved because we've thought more carefully, more deeply, in more detail about the gospel that saved us. The gospel we gather around, the gospel we just sang through. So we want to visit this book in order that our hearts might be moved to worship. This morning, looking through chapters 1 through 7, I have just three points. I'll give them to you now, and then we'll step through them. A good bit of introduction, then we'll survey these offerings, these sacrifices, and then we'll conclude. So the three points are the problem, the solution, and the goal. The problem, the solution, and the goal. And we'll talk about each as we go. So first up, we have the problem. You need to understand that Leviticus is set In the context of a drama, of a story, it's just one part. And getting that context helps you understand the necessity of the book of Leviticus, the necessity of the sacrificial system. Here's the problem. How can a dwelling place, Tim just read Exodus 40, the glory of the Lord comes and dwells in the midst of the tabernacle. How can a dwelling place become a meeting place? How can the dwelling place of God become the meeting place between God and man? After God delivered Israel out of Egypt, back in Exodus chapter 14, he enters into this covenant relationship with them. Maybe you remember this. This happens at Mount Sinai, and then he gives what we call the Mosaic Covenant, or the Sinai Covenant. And at the heart of that, we find in Exodus chapter 20, is the Ten Commandments, right? You're familiar with those. But there's also instruction given on how to build this tent of meeting, this dwelling place for God, the tabernacle. This is where God is going to dwell in the midst of his people. And so we have about 15 chapters at the end of the book of Exodus describing how this should be constructed. And we just read Exodus uh, 40 just as it kind of pulls together as the instructions are followed by Moses. As he actually kind of assembles the tent, if you will. At each end of the instruction regarding the tabernacle, the heart of it, we have a promise. We have it in Exodus 25. We have it again in Exodus 29. Just listen. It goes like this. Let them make me a sanctuary. Here it is. That I may dwell in their midst. That's the Lord's longing, right? That's the point of the tabernacle. Or in chapter 29, he says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell with them. Why did he deliver them? That he might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So, as we are thinking about the context, you don't need to turn back there, but just a couple 
reminders. If you were to read through the book of Exodus, you would find a couple things striking. The first is this incident with the golden calf that's right in the middle of the instruction regarding the tabernacle. You can read about this in Exodus 32. And if I were to summarize the story, it's Israel's sinful. Right? Right? It's just right in the middle. Right in the middle of this instruction. So Moses says to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. God is holy and Israel's messed up. Israel is sinful. They, they deserve to be destroyed. Atonement is needed, Moses says. Then the other thing that would strike us, one of many, is what Tim read earlier. And if you have your Bible open to Leviticus chapter 1, if you turn back, just maybe it's the same page, to Exodus 40. I want to look at just a couple verses at the end of the book of Exodus to help us understand the significance of this. Really, the climax of the book of Exodus comes beginning in verse 34. Exodus 40, 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Right? That's what we've been moving towards. He's going to repeat it in the next verse. But before he does, look at the beginning of verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God has taken up his abode, his earthly abode, in the midst of his people. But here's the issue. There's not yet a way for man to join, for humanity to approach him safely, to enjoy fellowship with him. The dwelling place has not yet become a meeting place. If you were an Israelite and you hear that, you would think, if not Moses, then who? Who can go up to the mountain and meet with God in the cloud? Moses alone. Who is the mediator between Yahweh and Israel? It's Moses alone. Now God has done what he's promised to do in chapter 25, in chapter 29, the culmination of the tabernacle. And he has moved in. He has made his dwelling place in the midst of his people. But Moses can't go in. Our mediator can't go in. How in the world is the dwelling place going to be a meeting place if our mediator can't even go in? Do you see the problem? This is not insignificant. This, this would lead to a level of, okay, despair, right? W what now? So interesting in verse 35 that God's presence is given as the reason Moses can't go in. It is God's dwelling place. And so it cannot yet function as the tent of meeting. How can the dwelling place of God become the meeting place of God and man? This is a dire reality. And that's the context for Leviticus. Yahweh is present as promised, but he cannot be approached even by Moses. And so the gulf between God and man is impossible to overcome. So Leviticus doesn't just come after Exodus. Leviticus is needed. It's the revealed way that God has ordained by which Israel may approach Yahweh. It recounts how the gulf 
is gradually eliminated and how God's dwelling place can become the meeting place between God and man. In a sense, this isn't resolved until we get to chapter 9. Chapter 29, sorry, chapter 9 rather, chapter 9 is when Moses and Aaron are able to enter the tent of meeting. But what comes between the crisis of Exodus 40 and the resolve of Leviticus 9? Well, it's specific instructions regarding sacrifices. That's what we have in these first few chapters. We're given the basics already in the book of Genesis. If you're reading through Genesis and and Exodus, you will have run into sacrifices, people worshiping the Lord, offering sacrifices. You'll know some of the basics of sacrificial system. You'll know, if you will, the, the nouns and the verbs. And when we come to Leviticus, we're a little overwhelmed because here we have the grammar. Right? Where how, how does it all work? He's getting into the details. Yes, we've heard about altars, and yes, we've heard about worship, and yes, we've heard about the importance of blood, and even sacrifice, and substitution, and then suddenly we're given the details. We're given the, the full explanation. We're given the how. Friends, this is how. This is how God has opened the way for humanity to dwell in his presence. For a holy God to dwell in the midst of a sinful people, God must provide the way. And he has, through sacrifice and through a holy priesthood, set apart to offer that sacrifice. There's no access to God, life-giving access to God, apart from his revealed way. Do you see, we're about to go into Leviticus and we have the groundwork for John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we'll think, well, that's how it's always been. God has always had to provide the way. There's no way for sinful people to meet with a holy God unless God provides the way. Not even Moses himself could mediate that. In Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1, we have the Lord calling out to Moses, spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Again, we won't go this slow through the whole book. We can't. But just note, this doesn't arrive in a vacuum, right? Remember what the Lord did to Adam in the garden? He called out to him. Where are you? Or more specific to Moses, do you remember with the burning bush? The Lord called to him, Moses, Moses, and he said, here am I. Or from Mount Sinai, the Lord called to him out of the mountain. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. Or the glory of the Lord in Exodus 24 dwells on Mount Sinai. The cloud covers it on the seventh day. He calls out to Moses from the midst of the cloud. God has called out to Moses before from a bush, from a mountain, from a cloud, and now from a tent. We have the problem. We've begun to see where the solution is going to come from. Now, point number two, the solution is the sacrificial system. Our lives are a world away, world, so far away from the sacrificial system. But I need you to just use your sanctified imagination, as my pastor growing up would have said, uh, and, and just enter into this picture with me. Every morning... 
And every night, one lamb would be sacrificed by the priests. Every Sabbath, you would add two more lambs to the morning and the evening lamb that was already sacrificed that day. On the first day of the month, you would add two bulls, a ram, seven lambs, and a goat, in addition to the two lambs that were already offered that day. On special days, you would add additional. So the Feast of Booze was particularly bloody. Over eight days, there would be 71 bulls and 15 rams and 105 lambs and two goats, plus the two daily lambs, plus the extra two on the Sabbath. Over the course of the year, the public sacrifices would amount to well over a thousand lambs, not to mention grain offerings, not to mention drink offerings. These were all offered to the Lord here at the tabernacle. You got the picture now. Let's read verse 2. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. So what I just listed for you, all those lambs, all those bulls, all those rams, those are like base level. That does not include what you as an individual Israelite were required to bring. That's not thinking of what we have here in Leviticus 1 through 7. These are in addition to all of that. What a description. So what was the process? I want to zoom in. This is really the only time we'll zoom in on verses 3 through 9. Verses 3 through 9 is the first of these five offerings or sacrifices that's described. This is called the burnt offering. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. But I want to just look at these verses with you. So we're just going to step through verses 3 through 9 pretty quickly here so you can get a base of what, what was generally true, and then we'll talk categorically. Verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. God knows our tendency, doesn't he? We like donating what we're not using. I did a goodwill run. I don't know about your family, but we, you know, if we have things we're not going to use, we'll donate it to goodwill, which usually means it'll ride around in my trunk for about three months. Uh, and, then, and then it'll go to goodwill. I just want to make sure it's really good and shaken up. We give what we're not using. We might give what we don't like. We might give more because we know there's a tax write-off. God says... Take a male, more valuable, and not an old one, and not a lame one, not a, but one without blemish. So you don't get to go out to your flock, go out to your herd, and look in their eyes and say, that, that one, I bet you in a week that one's going to be diseased, and I see it coming. That's not, no, not at all. You take the best, you take the most valuable, and you bring it by faith. Where's the faith? Well, you assume Yahweh is in the tabernacle, and you assume if I do it his way, he'll accept. In faith, you bring the best without blemish. You couldn't, you couldn't enter yourself, but, but you would hand the perfect sacrifice to the priest, that the sacrifice without blemish might, might enter, if you will, in your stead. But first, verse 4. 
He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that is the worshiper, you, me, if you will. And it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. So you'd press your hand onto the head of the bull. You almost lean on it. The language is, is that you're really pressing, not just touching, you're pressing. And what is the point? Well, this, this bull is going to die in my place. This is my substitute. I'm identifying myself with this bull, this spotless, without blemish, sacrifice. You would then kill the bull at the entrance. And as you killed it, you would drain the blood. The priest would gather it and throw it on the side of the altar, displaying it before the Lord, just like at the Passover. And then you would butcher the bull, cut it into pieces, and the priest would take those pieces on the altar, or to the altar to be placed on the altar to be burned bit by bit. So if you have the flannel graph image of the whole bull sitting on the altar, that's not quite it. Right? They were bringing butchered steaks, if you will. And as the priest did that, you'd be busy washing entrails and legs before you hand those over to be burned as well. Let's keep reading in verse 6. Or verse 5, rather. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw it against the side of the altar, the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he shall flay the burnt offering and cut into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's son, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat and the wood, on the wood that is on the fire, on the altar, but its entrails and its legs you shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn it all on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Your sacrifice would be burnt up. That's what's called a burnt offering. Be all devoured, except for the skin, it was all burnt up. And the smoke of the altar would join the smoke of God's presence over the whole of the tabernacle. And this happened constantly. The fire was not to go out, we read in Leviticus chapter 6. This pillar of smoke that moved would have been a constant reminder of God's presence. And the smoke from the altar would have been a constant reminder of man's sin. Constant. Each sacrifice you brought would have been instructive Sin is costly. It requires a sacrifice. It requires a payment. It would have been instructive that each sacrifice was substitutionary. Sin is always personal, and so you need a personal substitute. You would identify with that animal, and then you would kill it. It was as if you were killing yourself, right? Sin is serious. I love this, this summary, this rhythm, this chorus for the sacrificial system. God is holy, I'm a sinner, I deserve to die. That's what you would have been reminded of, instructed of again and again and again. God is holy, I'm a sinner, and I deserve to die. Yet the sacrificial system would have taught something else. That God is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. He's willing to forgive, willingly, those who have no merit on their own. We need forgiveness, and only God can forgive. 
Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. It isn't earned. It's received by faith. So the tabernacle and what we learn in Leviticus is is what the Israelite must do, what the priest must do. Fundamentally, it's what God must do. So God cleanses and God consecrates and God blesses through the blood and the sacrifice and the high priest. Leviticus reminds us that there is only one true God. And when you've brought your sacrifice to the tabernacle and put your hands on it and killed it and cut it up and watched it burn, you're reminded that one true God is who you have to deal with. Let's move now to third point, the goal, fellowship with God. The goal, fellowship with God. Here uh, in really the bulk of our section, verses uh, chapter 1, really verse 3, all the way through chapter 6, verse 8, we have a listing of five offerings or five sacrifices. And then we have kind of the putting into place regarding the priests in the rest of chapter 6 and chapter Seven. And as we have the offerings uh, mentioned in Scripture, we have them listed two different ways, and they're listed in different orders at different times. There's a descriptive order like we have here in, in chapter 1 through 6, 8, and you have one, then the other, then the other, and we can write those down, and I'll read them to you in just a second. There's an order. If you look at the headings in your Bible, you can see that order. Uh, and then we have another kind of descriptive order as, as it's recounted what the priests are to do in handling this in 6, 9, all the way through chapter 7. But when we get to chapter 9, this is when Moses and Aaron go in. This is when the sacrificial system actually begins. It's no longer being described. The process is being laid out. Then we have the order that would have been the practice of the priests. And in order to understand the theology of the offerings, of the sacrifices, I think we need to know the order that it would have been done. Be able to kind of picture how it would have normally or often gone the best we could understand. In our passage, chapters 1 through 7, it's burnt offering, then grain, then peace, then sin, then guilt. And then when he instructs the priest, it changes just slightly. But in chapter 9, we have the procedural order. And I want to talk through the sacrifices from our passages according to the process that it would have followed. So first would have been the sin or guilt offering, sometimes called the purification offering. These two offerings, the sin and guilt offerings, they're the ones where blood is emphasized. Cleansing for sin is particularly needed. We're going to see this in chapter 17, where we read, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your sins. For it is in the blood, sorry, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So the primary atonement language in chapters 1 through 7 is around these two offerings, sin and guilt, right? So when you think sin and guilt, you want to think blood, you want to think atonement. Now, the burnt offering was also made for atonement, but that seems to be the emphasis here. Atonement has this idea of propitiation, right? The appeasing of wrath, right? So sin provokes the wrath of God. It calls forth God's wrath. And so an offering is needed to propitiate, to appease that wrath. 
This is what atonement is for. But sin also defiles, and that defilement must be removed. So cleansing is needed. Peace offerings, grain offerings can't do this. This is what the sin and guilt offering are for. The emphasis of the sin offering, uh, which uh, we find over in chapter 4, is for purification. We'll talk more about this as we go through the book. Atones for known sins against a divinely revealed standard. Even if the sin was unintentional, even if it was the sin of omission, you needed this sin offering. Atonement needed to be made. We also have the guilt offering. The guilt offering is similar to the sin offering, except part of the offering would have been eaten by the priests. Again, it's said to atone for sin against divinely revealed standards, even if unintentional. Read about this in chapter 6. So first would have been a sin or a guilt offering, and then would have come the burnt offering or the offering of ascension. This is the sacrifice would be fully burnt up, and it would ascend like a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This was the most common offering. This is the one we just surveyed in chapter 1, the burnt offering. It was a general offering. It could be used for different purposes, for thanksgiving, for praise, for purification. Unique to this offering is that the entire animal was burnt up. Burnt offering. Just think, it's all being burnt up. Right. Not just a portion of the meat or the fat, but it's all consumed. And this animal is transformed into an aroma, pleasing aroma to the Lord. So it conveys this idea of consecration, right? The full animal is given, consecrated to the Lord, fully dedicated to the Lord. With it would be the grain offering or a tribute. We read about this in chapter 2. This often accompanied the other offerings. And then finally, the peace offering. Unlike the burnt offering, only the fatty parts are going to be offered. So go over to chapter 3, verse 1. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw the blood against the side of the altars. And then the sacrifice of the peace offering as a food offering to the Lord. He shall offer the fat offering of the entrails and all the fat that is in the entrails. And the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he has removed from the kidneys. Then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering which is on the wood of the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It'd be like burning up the filet and the ribeye. Only the most savory parts were burnt up. This is the only offering in which an Israelite worshiper ate part of it. This is the peace offering. It's a means of communion, fellowship with the Lord. So I just rushed through that, and I want to just slow down and help us understand kind of the logic of that. And I think this is where chapter 9, the ordering, helps us. Cleansing through blood, then consecration of the whole, 
then fellowship with God. That's the order. Cleansing through blood, consecration of the whole, then fellowship with God. Cleansing through blood, this is the sin, this is the guilt offering, consecration of the whole, this is the burnt and the, the tribute, the, the gifts of, law, of the Lord. This, and then fellowship with God, this is the peace offering. So how is the way opened up for sinful humanity to be in the presence of a holy God? It's through sacrifice. And this sacrifice tells the story of the gospel, right? Sins covered. Lives consecrated. Fellowship renewed. So notice that the goal of the sacrifices isn't merely atonement. As central as that is. No, the goal of atonement is fellowship. The goal of substitution is communion. The goal of the gospel isn't just that you'd be forgiven and I'd be forgiven, but that we would enjoy fellowship with our God and forever. So God saves in order to relate, so it ends in a meal. It ends with the peace offering, with table fellowship, with communion with God. It's called a tent of meeting for a reason. The sacrifices are moving towards a meal. The goal is fellowship with God. Staggering. Staggering. We'll see those themes throughout Scripture. There's other meals. I want to end with just two points of application. Two points of application. There's so many places where we can just jump off and uh, meditate and rejoice. Uh, We'll have plenty of opportunity in the next four sermons to do that. But two points of application. The first is remember the anthem of substitution. Remember the anthem of substitution. God is holy. I'm a sinner. I deserve to die. The animal is identified with the sinner. The animal, the substitute, then dies for the sinner. The sinner who deserves to die lives and goes home. The lamb, the bull, the goat without blemish took the penalty for sin. Remember Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Paul didn't make that up. That's right here in Leviticus 1 through 7. God is holy. I'm a sinner. I deserve to die. It's true, right? So imagine being a Jew and hearing from John the Baptist's lips, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You would know exactly what he meant, right? The Lamb of God. Finally, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So through the death of Christ, through the Lamb of God, through the sacrifice, the substitute, any and all can know the fullness of joy in his presence, can know fellowship with God, communion with God. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater, more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the goat, of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus Christ is the substitute. He is the sacrifice. He bore the penalty so that we might enjoy fellowship with our creator, so that God's dwelling place might also become the meeting place of God. 
God and man, and that is Christ. So will you receive him, the Lamb of God, as your substitute? Do you believe that God is holy and that you're a sinner and that you deserve to die? That's what the Bible says from beginning to end, and we cannot enter into his presence. We need a go-between. We need a substitute. We need a sacrifice, and Jesus is that sacrifice. So call out to him. Cry to him. Trust in him. If you're a Christian, you've come to believe and love this good news. In your place, condemned he stood. So why do you still fear his wrath? Since we have been justified by faith, we have, remember the last offering? Peace, fellowship, communion. So why do you punish yourself assuming he'll never accept you back? Jesus doesn't just pay for our sin or cover our guilt. He secures our peace. That's the goal. Fellowship with God. So live. Live in that blood-bought fellowship. Second point of application. Because of Christ's sacrifice... Praise and good works are the proper sacrifices of a Christian. Praise and good works are the sacrifices that we offer. Paul uses the language of a fragrant offering, right? We saw that idea in Leviticus chapter 1 to describe not only Christ's work and his sacrifice, but also our generosity, Right? A pleasing aroma to the Lord is the generosity of Christians, Philippians 4, 18. Or listen to Hebrews 13. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Or 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And we're going to see when we get to the end of the book of Leviticus that God is so holy that the holiness he calls his people to permeates every area of their lives. The laws are going to get pretty specific. And so we're not surprised that when the New Testament calls us to sacrifice, it doesn't just say, give generously, sing out on Sunday. No, Paul can write and say, I urge you, on the basis of the mercy that you've received in Christ, that you present yourselves your bodies, your very lives, all of you, every moment, every calorie burnt, every energy burnt, all your time, all of you as a, not a burnt offering, but a living sacrifice, a living offering. One where your life is laid down in worship of the Lamb. One where your life is given back gladly that you might be spent up fully consecrated to him. 
glorifying him, not just with our weekends, but with our lives. Because of Christ's sacrifice, praise, good works, our very lives are the proper response. Are you living that way, fully consecrated, fully dedicated to God? Are you saying, man, in whatever I do, whether it's at my job, with my family, with friends, serving on, whatever, whatever I do, let me serve only you. May my life be spent worshiping you. How can the dwelling place of God become the meeting place of God and man? Well, it's only through sacrifice, only through atonement. There is no other way. How can you be saved from God's wrath against you in your sin? How can we as sinners know not just forgiveness, not just guilt covered, not just atonement, as glorious that is, but how can we know fellowship? How can we dwell in the presence of a holy God and have him dwell in us? Well, it is only through sacrifice, only through atonement. It is only through the way God has opened up for us in Christ. Uh, Let me pray, uh, and then we will respond to the Lord in worship and song together. Father God, we are just so grateful that when when we come to a passage like Leviticus, that we can place it within a story of redemption and see how it provides the instruments upon which we sing and in which we rejoice, on which we hear the gospel tune. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, the sacrifice that we need, the substitute who bore our penalty and died in our place. Thank you that we in Christ can be forgiven, and thank you that we in Christ can know fellowship with you. What an amazing thing it is to read at the end of Exodus, in the beginning of Leviticus, that the tabernacle there in the wilderness of Sinai, you have established this tabernacle, this new Eden, And you have come and dwelt in the midst of your people. What a stark image that is. And yet we're reminded that we can only have access through your way. Father, we pray for any here this morning who have not come by way of Christ. Maybe they have sought to come their own way. Maybe they've sought to come your way plus a little of their way. Father, I pray that they would bring nothing in their hands and they would cling simply to the cross that they would see the beauty of the way you have provided and that they would trust in Christ alone and be saved. Father, we pray that as we journey through this book over the next few weeks and months that you would enliven our hearts to the truths, to the depths of the gospel. Help us to understand the nouns and the verbs and the images that lay the foundation for the songs we sing and for our lives of worship of the King. And we pray all of this in Christ's name.